You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, where our sermon text will include the first 11 verses, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, the first 11 verses. I'll give you a moment to turn there before I read that text. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Father, we have... Agreed together in prayer that our hope is not in this world, in no aspect of this world. And we've agreed together that our hope is in you, in the one that you have put forward, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So we pray now that you would lift him up and show us his glory. Those who believe, those who don't yet believe, lift the Messiah high to be seen, for his glory to be revealed and cause us to believe in him and have life in his name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by talking about anticipation. Anticipation. It's fall weather on the way here. You saw the leaves coming down, and soon there'll be no leaves. The trees will be bare. It will be winter. It will be cold. The days will be short and gray, and we will all be, many of us, looking forward, anticipating, looking forward to the day when those little buds come out on the branches of the trees. Or you could consider the wife whose husband is deployed overseas, and she's waiting for him to come back. And she is longing, she's hoping he'll be safe, and she's really looking forward to that day when the ship comes over the horizon, and there she sees him waving, and oh, the wait is over. Or maybe you know the story of Louis Zamperini, Californian man back in the time of World War II. He was an Olympic runner, and he ended up fighting in World War II in the Pacific on a B-52 bomber. He was shot down into the Pacific Ocean where he survived on a raft and was picked up by the Japanese and taken back to Japan and he lived there for a long time as a prisoner of war. And it was really bad there. There There's one particular Japanese soldier who they called the bird 
who subjected his subjects, including Louis Zamperini, to all kinds of horrible things, torture, beatings. At one point, he takes this belt off with a belt buckle, and he swings it, and it hits Louis on the side of the head. It knocks him out. Intellectual, psychological abuse, it is cruel. And Louis is anticipating the day when he will be made free of this place. And eventually, he gets word, oh, the Allies are winning the war. And then later, he gets word, the Allies have won the war. And then that day comes. He's been waiting and waiting, anticipating what will come. And he sees that first American plane fly over his prisoner of war camp. And oh, the wait is over. Anticipation. All of us know what it's like, whether it's something small on your calendar or something like I've just been describing that is deep and integral to your person that you are longing for. We know. Anticipation. And the Bible says a lot about anticipation. The first three quarters of your Bible, called the Old Testament, is full of anticipation. God makes tremendous promises about what is coming and leaves his people hoping in him, anticipating the day when all those promises come to fruition. Anticipation. So I want to tell you the story. In short, in case you're unfamiliar with how the Old Testament works, what is in those first pages, that big chunk at the beginning of your Bible? There is a God who makes all things, the universe and planet Earth. He fills it up and makes it wonderful. He makes the sky, the land, the mountains, makes the earth bud and sprout and full of green, lush, wonderful things, fills it up with animals, fills the sea up with swarming and teeming things. It's full of life. And on the sixth day, he makes man, made in his own image, to be his image bearers and to have a unique relationship with him. But you know the story. Adam and Eve defy God, rebel against God, reject him, and they eat the fruit. They don't want God to be their God. They want to be God themselves, and so they create a rift. Now there's a rift between God and men. But God promises that day, I'm gonna fix it all. The seed of the woman will be born and she will crush the head of the seed of the serpent and I will make everything right. I'm going to send a savior. The seed refers to a descendant, a person. He will come and fix it all. And from that point forward, you have anticipation. That's Genesis chapter 3. That's the third chapter. From then on, the rest of the Old Testament, Old Testament is anticipating the day that God will make it all right and he will make it all right through one person. Anticipation is coming. So God chooses Abraham to be his family from whom the seed will come. They expand and then God brings them into covenant with himself through Moses on Mount Sinai. You know the Ten Commandments. And this covenant Obey and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be cursed. The people disobey. They do what God told them not to do. That's the end of that section of the story. They choose disobedience. And so God sends them the prophets. You know, Joel and Malachi and all the prophets that come at the end of the Old Testament and they have two messages. The first message is, looking backwards, return to faithfulness. Remember God's commands, remember his law, remember the covenant, be faithful to God. But the second half is looking forward. God's going to make it all right. Just like he's been promising since way back in Genesis 3, God is going to make it all right. He's going to send a Messiah. The last days 
are coming. Things won't always be like this. The new covenant is coming in which God will do away with sin as the original problem of all things and give all of his blessing to all of his people forever. So the prophets talk about the good things of God that are coming. Let me give you a sampling from Jeremiah. He says this, They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will be radiant over the bounty or the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. And that's how the Old Testament ends. With all the promises of God yet to be fulfilled, and God's people anticipating the day when God makes good on all those promises. They're waiting. And then you arrive in the Gospels. 400 years after the close of the Old Testament, you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're the stories of Jesus' life. And is John picking up on all of the things anticipated in the Old Testament? Is John writing in a theological vacuum? What is the background to the sermon text that I read this morning? The answer is that God is, John is, you could say God through John is picking up on all the things that God has promised. All the anticipation. John is digging into all that, bringing you to all of it, and saying, God's about to do it all. And if that's the case, you would think some evidence of that would show up in, for example, the prologue, which is essentially an introduction to the Gospel of John as a whole. That's the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Here's some examples. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And we've heard already how that is a pretty obvious allusion back to Genesis 1.1, where God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you have Genesis 1.1 in the beginning, John 1.1 in the beginning. You also have creation. In Genesis, you get creation. John 1.3, you get all things came into being through the word. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. And there's more. But John is picking up on these these anticipated restorations, the anticipated fulfillments that God's people have been waiting on. But beyond just the prologue, the first several chapters of John have a lot to do with the Old Testament. I don't know if you've been as surprised as I have as we've gone through the Gospel of John with how saturated the Gospel is with Old Testament illusion. The Gospel of John makes no sense without the Old Testament. It makes zero sense. I was imagining yesterday, what would this gospel be like if you had no idea about the Old Testament? What temple is he talking about? Why is the, the woman in Samaria talking about this mountain, and that, this, this mountain and that mountain? Who are the Samaritans? I mean, you could go on and on. It makes no sense. Consider a few examples, though, in the first four chapters, just the first four chapters, which some people have called the Cana cycle. They all occur geographically in the same area of the writer of the Gospel of John picking up on the expectations and anticipations of the Old Testament. John the Baptist comes to do Isaiah chapter 40 and to prepare the way of the Lord. You also could consider John chapter 2 where Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. So, No longer the old temple, the first temple, which was preparatory and to be fulfilled. Jesus is saying, the new temple has come. Or John chapter 3, Nicodemus, that nighttime conversation. 
Unless someone's born again, Jesus says, he won't enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to talk about being born of water and the Spirit. There's a new birth that's coming. And Jesus is referencing back to Ezekiel and saying, the new covenant's coming. You're all going to be born again. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to sprinkle you, make you totally clean. I'm going to give you my Spirit. Or, as I mentioned a minute ago, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she wants to know which mountain. Is it Mount Gerizim or is it in Jerusalem where people are going to worship God? And Jesus says, neither one. The days are coming when on neither mountain but in the spirit and truth you'll worship God. And the point I'm trying to drive home right now is that John, the writer, is writing in the context of the Old Testament, considering the anticipated fulfillment of God's promises and saying, it's now. He's here. John chapter 1, verse 20, when they come to ask John the Baptist who he is, what's the first thing he feels compelled to deny? I am not the Christ. They're wondering, are you the Christ? No. Or again, John the Baptist in 133, he says, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Again, new covenant language, giving of the Spirit language. Andrew to Peter in chapter 1, verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Philip to Nathaniel, 145, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. You see what John's doing. He's priming the pump. He's building the suspense. The revelation is coming. It's like being in a theater. The lights are all down. Everyone goes quiet. There's the stage. The big red curtains are there and everyone's waiting for it to open up and you get to see what's there. That's what John is doing. He's turning up the temperature. He's getting you ready. And that brings us to the moment when our story begins in John chapter 2. There's a wedding in Cana of Galilee on what John calls the third day. Jordan mentioned this last week. John does seem to be intentionally setting forward day one, day two, day three, all the way to day seven, mirroring, as I mentioned a moment ago, this new creation theme at which God will make everything new and right again. And so he says, here we are on the third day. That would be four plus three equaling seven. And they're at a wedding. Again, a creation ordinance. Think back to Genesis chapter one and two where God pairs Adam and Eve and he puts them together and he's created this good thing called marriage. That's the context. Newness, new creation. And they're at this wedding. They estimate, commentators do, somewhere about nine miles or so from Nazareth, so not far from Jesus' home. Mary appears already to have been there. Mary was there. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it seems like these are uh, friends. People know each other. These are not, this is not the kind of wedding you go to when you're invited because you married somebody who knows the folks. This is the wedding you go to when you know all these people. And they're at a wedding. It's a party. You know what these are like. Imagine a wedding reception, the feast that follows. It seems like, you can go back to Judges and read, these things lasted a week, a big celebration, a feast. There's joy, there's mirth, good times, smiles on all the faces. Everyone's there together. The grandmothers are there, all the families united. The grandmothers have their babies. The grandfathers are over here telling stories of old times. The young men... They're over here, they haven't gotten to see each other for a while, and they're enjoying catching up with one another. The same for the young women. They're enjoying each other's company. The young girls are together. There's joy. 
It's a cause of rejoicing. And perhaps most of all, the bride and the groom, they're there rejoicing. They've waited for this day a long time. Now it's here. They're ready to be wed and to start their new life together. The food is awesome. It's the good stuff. Nobody's pinching pennies. Nobody's watching their diets. Revelry, mirth, joy, everything is good. And then all of a sudden, there's a problem. In verse 3, there's a downer. The balloons deflate. Something's wrong. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Now, we don't always feel the weight of this, but this is, this is bad. This is not good. This is a really big problem. We know that the groom is responsible, not only because you can look at all kinds of other texts and do your academic kind of research, but the head waiter comes when he gets the wine later, and who does he call? He calls the groom, and he tells the groom. Most people keep the bad wine until the end, but you, groom, you being the one in charge of all this, you have kept the good wine until now. So the groom is responsible for making sure this all goes down how it's supposed to go. There's even some evidence that if it goes poorly, like running out of wine in the middle, he might be financially liable. I mean, this is really bad. This is not a good scenario at this wedding. Imagine being at your own wedding, about half the people have gone through the line to get the food, and you run out. And you're going to have half your guests who are supposed to be rejoicing and feasting going home with grumbling tummies. That's what's going on. It's not good. This is an honor-shame society. This is a shameful thing. This is not an honorable thing. So Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now we don't know exactly what she's hoping that Jesus will do, but we know she's hoping for something pretty significant because of the way he responds. He says, woman, what is that between us? What does that have to do with us? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. So we need to think about how he's responding now to her. That word in our Bibles, it says, woman, this is essentially a translation issue. It's hard to figure out how to make it not sound disrespectful. In the English Bible, you read that and you say, oh my, and I don't really have a good recommendation, but we know it's not disrespectful because you can read John chapter 19 where Jesus used the same word, woman, in the same way, identically. But let me tell you the context there. He's hanging on the cross. He's about to give up his life. He looks down, he sees his mom. There's Mary, he loves her. There's John, the disciple. He looks at Mary and he says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. It's not disrespectful. Maybe you could say, ma'am. Maybe you could say, dear lady. But he is correcting her. He is altering her request. He's saying, no, no, you've got the wrong idea. Because he does say to her, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about? About four times in the first half of the Gospel of John, Jesus says something like that. My hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 12, there's a pivot because the hour has come. So he says there in 1223, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's here. What hour is that? 
Next sentence. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour Jesus is talking about is the climax of the Gospel of John in which he'll hang on a cross and die as a substitute for the sins of all people, including you. That's the hour. And then he'll rise from the dead. And in John, John always talks about the son being glorified. Glorify me. He's going to be glorified and lifted up, both on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the hour. And Jesus says, it's not time. He's just beginning his public ministry here in this passage. He's got things to teach, disciples to train, signs to perform in the rest of this gospel, and it's not time. So maybe Mary is wanting something public. Later on, Jesus' disciples will want him to do that. They'll know who he is, and they'll want him to go and make himself known. If this is who you are, go make yourself known to the world. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Well, he does the same thing here to Mary, and he says, it's not time. Then the story gets kind of interesting because he says this to Jesus, and then Mary looks over, or sorry, he says this to Mary, who then looks over to the servants, and he says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. <laughs> She's persistent. She doesn't take this as a total shutdown. She says to these servants, whatever he tells you, do it. And Jesus doesn't push back. We'll see how the story goes, but before we get there, John pauses. The scene is unfolding, things are going on, and then in verse 6, John pauses, and he wants to draw your attention over here to these pots. So we're going to pause and think about the pots, and John gives you this really specific information about the water pots. There's two things that John wants you to see about the water pots, their size and their function. Jordan mentioned this morning, these are big pots. They're really large. They're made of stone. They're 20 to 30 gallons each. So I tried, I don't know what a 20 or 30 gallon tank is. I don't have one. I don't have any idea how big that is. So I did a little number crunching and tried to see if I could help you. You guys, most of you know what a five gallon bucket is. About this big, you put paint or something else in there. You mix stuff in it and everything. Well, imagine five of them. That's 25 gallons. That's one water pot. So you got six of these. They're huge. Or if that's not helpful to you, maybe you could know that the average bath, if you take a bath at your house, is about 30 gallons. Usually most people use about 30 gallons. So this is maybe a little bit less than that. So you could be conservative and you could say maybe four or five bathtub full, bathtubs full of water is what could be held in these water pots. The idea is they're big. They're big because they're at a wedding. And at a wedding, you have a lot of people who are going to need to use water from these water pots for the purification, like maybe cleansing of the hands before eating and things like that. So it's a lot of water. Second, I said their purpose. You have the Jewish custom of purification, or the ESV says the Jewish rites of purification. Say, so what in the world is that? D.A. Carson puts it this way. The six water jars were made of stone because stone, being more impervious than earthenware, did not itself contract uncleanness. They were therefore the more suitable for ceremonial washing. The water, here it is, represents the old order of Jewish law 
and custom. I referred earlier to the Mosaic law. God, in giving the law, formed his people to care about sin and holiness, about purity and uncleanness. He inculcated that into their whole worldview so that they would know sin is an evil and a wicked thing. And holiness is what God desires because he is holy. So it's not all bad. We don't need to point the finger and say, oh, they're just so obsessed with this idea of ceremonial cleanness. It's God who put all these things into their whole society to make them care deeply about cleanness and uncleanness. And that's why these water pots are present. And they represent, as Carson said, the old order of Jewish law and custom. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the story. Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And Jesus says to the servants, fill them up with water. And they go, and they start filling and filling. And I mentioned before, this is a lot of water. If you do the math on how much it probably weighed, it's about half a ton, about a thousand pounds of water. So they're filling. They're going, I guess, to the well or some other source of water, and they're filling the pots. And they're filling the pots. And Jesus is standing there waiting. And the disciples are there waiting, and Mary is watching, and everybody's seeing what's going on. But you should remember the, the presenting problem is a, a lack of wine. So everyone's watching the water go into the pots and seeing the pots get filled and filled. Don't you think the writing's on the wall? You think they were starting to get suspicious about what's going to happen? They didn't ask for water. They asked for wine. And Jesus is saying, fill them up with water. That's what he says. Fill them up with water. And they do. And they get done and they fill them all the way up to the brim, John is careful to point out. All the way up to the very top. Once it's full, Jesus says, draw some now and take it to the head waiter. That's the person who's in charge of administering the wine. Go take it to him. And off they go. And they're going to deliver him whatever is in this cup. They're going to let him have a taste of it. And it's at this point in, in verse 9 and 10 that John wants you to lean forward and pay attention closely because there's several things that you need to keep in your mind at the same time. That's the way John describes it. It's the slow motion shot. John makes plain there in verse 9 that the same servants that Mary said, whatever he tells do you, are the same servants that filled the pots with water and those are the same servants that take that cup and walk through the crowd and go find the head waiter. So they know full well, after all of that filling, what they put in those water pots. And John wants you to know that when they get there to give the head waiter the cup, they don't tell him where it came from. They say nothing. They just give him the cup. And he has no idea what's going on. The idea is that he is an unbiased taster. He's impartial. He's not been groomed to think anything specific about the contents of that cup. So here come the servants. They know full well. They're watching. Here's the head waiter. He's receiving the cup. He's clueless. And he tastes the wine. He puts it in his mouth. And when he does, he's blown away. 
he reflexively calls the groom and they have a conversation. And you know what he says? You heard the text. Everybody serves the good wine first and then when the crowds or the guests have had enough to drink and they can't taste maybe like they could when they were fully sensible, then they serve the cheap wine. But you, judging based on the contents of this, of this cup, you save the good wine until the very end. The idea is that the head waiter, John wants you to know, God wants you to know, the Holy Spirit wants you to know, the head waiter is blown away about the quality of what he just tasted. You know the coffee people who taste the coffee and they say, oh, I taste notes of blueberry. And you say, what in the world? This guy says, this is the most exquisite, perfect wine. It's incredible. Moreover, he was expecting cheap wine. You know how hard it is to overcome expectations if you're expecting bad? Even if it's good, you might think it's bad because that's what you thought was coming. The wine was good enough that it overcame his expectations. And the reason I'm belaboring this point is because that's what John is doing. That's why he sets it up like this. That's why he shows you that the head waiter is impartial so that when he tastes it, he's blown away. And he calls the head waiter, or the groom, pardon me, and says, you kept the good wine until now. And then the curtain closes. The head waiter makes his statement to the groom and the curtains close and the story is over. That's where it ends. That's the end of the narrative of the wedding at Cana of Galilee. It's finished. And you might ask the question, several questions. One of the first is, was it just the wine in the cup or was it the wine in the pots too? And I would want to argue that the most reasonable thing to understand is it's the wine in the pots too, all of it. Otherwise, the outstanding problem of a lack of wine is totally unresolved. What sense would it make for Jesus to change the wine in the cup, the water in the cup, pardon me, to wine, and leave the rest of it water so that the wedding still has no wine, how it began? It makes really no sense. So not only is the wine the most exquisite, but it's also ample. There's a lot of it. A thousand pounds, we should understand, of the most high-quality wine. So what's the moral of the story? <laughs> what's the moral of the story? Well, I began talking about expectation and pending promises of God, those that people are waiting, were waiting in the Old Testament to be fulfilled. They're waiting and they're waiting. And this parable in John chapter 2 represents the first inbreaking of God's kingdom coming in, in being revealed. So imagine being in a dark cave. You're trapped there. It's totally pitch black. You can't see a thing. And all of a sudden, up on the ceiling of the cave, you hear a thud. And then another thud. And all of a sudden, the pickaxe slams through the roof of your cave, and that light breaks down in, and all of a sudden, that bright light is here. That's what John chapter 2 is about. It's the first sign in, God, in uh, John's gospel, the first sign. And we've been talking about these signs, but I want to draw your attention to a, a thing or two about the signs. The first is that they are not random displays of raw 
power. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about Jesus' miracles and the signs in John, but they're miracles, you could say, with a meaning. He doesn't just levitate a giant boulder and put it back down just to show raw power. His miracles do show raw power. Water to wine does show raw power, but there's more. Consider the healings. When he takes a lame man and tells him to get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Is it just raw power or is it more? Well, it's more. It's compassion, but it's also, and here's the kicker, if you're not paying attention, zone in, it's also the fulfillment of God's promises. Because all the prophets that came before Jesus said in the last days, what's it going to be like? The lame will leap like the deer. So Jesus arrives, he says, get up and walk, and guess who's here? The Messiah. So we need to ask a couple of questions. Why water and why wine? I've already spoken a bit about the water. Carson called it the old order of Jewish law and custom. And what's happening is the old is giving way to the new. The old is giving way to the new. The types and shadows are being fulfilled. The old temple is becoming obsolete and the new temple has come. The old worship is gone. The new worship in the spirit has come. The old birth is gone. The new birth in the spirit has come. The old is gone. The new has come. And the water represents in those stone water pots that are for the purpose of the Jewish purification, the water in those pots represents the old. Jesus knows full well what those water pots are for. It's not an accident that he says, fill those up. A brother yesterday told me he he could have just put water back into whatever vessels the wine was in before it ran out. But he didn't. He switched vessels. And he said, put put the water in the water pots that have to do with ceremonial cleansing. That's what the water is for. That's why Jesus selects it. That's why John goes out of his way to put it in there so that we won't miss it. True purification. The old purification is gone. The new purification has come. The old way of being clean before God is being fulfilled by the new. Well, why why wine? I want to begin answering that question by asking you another question. What if Jesus had turned water into milk and honey? What if that was what he had done? I know for most of you what would happen. Your ears would perk up and you would say, oh, wow, that's not just because he, you know, likes milk and honey, but that's about something deeper. There's something symbolic. There's a meaning in that miracle, right? That's what you'd say. You'd think of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, is there an Old Testament context for how we should understand wine? And does it explain why Jesus would turn water into wine? Does it explain why John would select this sign? He had a lot of signs to choose from, he says. Why John would select this sign to record as Jesus' first sign to reveal his glory? Is there an Old Testament background? Well, here you go. When Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Isaac blesses his son Jacob, the deceiver who tricked him into getting the blessing. When he blesses him, here's what he says. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven 
and of the fatness of the earth. That means the rich, good things of the earth. And an abundance of grain and new wine. So when Isaac wants to describe the richest blessings of being in the land, what's on the list? Wine. The grain's going to grow and there's going to be a bountiful harvest. The vineyards are going to be really fruitful and there's going to be a bountiful harvest. May God bless you. And you won't be surprised then how Moses is going to talk about wine. I mentioned earlier the law, you know, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. If you keep it, you get blessings. If you disobey it, you get curses. Guess what's in the blessings and curses? Moses says, if you obey, quote, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock and the land which you swore to your forefathers to give you. But if you disobey, you will plant vineyards and other people will harvest from them and drink the wine. Referring to the exile. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the people choose to disobey. And they are exiled. And they do go live in a foreign land. And other people do come and drink the wine that's produced by their vineyards. It's not a happy story, right? Things don't go well at all in the Old Testament. If you've not read through the Old Testament in a while, I would encourage you to do so. It is, the narrative of history is, kind of dark. The perpetual drumbeat is sin, 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 disobedience, disobedience, break the covenant, break the covenant. That's what it is over and over and over. And so the people, in keeping with that consistent pattern, disobey God. And so what does God do when the people are in exile? About five or 700 years before Jesus comes, he sends, as I said before, prophets. And guess how the prophets talk? When they want to tell God's people that all hope is not lost, that in the future, in those last days, God's blessing will come and rain down on them, that God will bring the new covenant, not like the old, and he will make them his people sovereignly by removing their sins by a crucified and resurrected Messiah. He's gonna bless them. He's gonna give them the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of them. He's gonna give them a new heart it's not like the old one, but a new one, a fleshy heart that beats for God. And he's going to bless them as much as the triune sovereign God can bless anyone. They employ, the prophets do, eyes like, ideas like abundant grain and oil, flocks, herds, and wine. Isaiah talks like this. Jeremiah talks like this. Joel, Amos, Hosea. Malachi, all of them use wine in this way to represent God's future eschatological blessing when the Messiah comes on his people. And I, can, I don't have time to go through all of them, but they are sweet and they are rich. I'll give you one. It's a text you know from Jeremiah 31, that famous new covenant text. So let's back up in chapter 30, the previous chapter, God promises to send King David, Jesus the Messiah, to save his people. This is verse 9 of chapter 30. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. 
Jeremiah said that 500 years after David lived, he's, he's going to be their king. The seed of David will be their king. And then fast forward to chapter 31, verse 5. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them, not someone else. Verse 12 of chapter 31. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and so on. And then in verse 27 begins the explicit talk of the new covenant that we're all very accustomed to, that I've been mentioning. What's the net result? What's the point? When the Davidic king, the Messiah, comes in the last days to usher in God's kingdom, to save God's people, the prophets who announce that future salvation do so in the terms of rich blessing that comes from the land like grain and oil and wine. Now let's go back to the wedding. Let's go back to that wedding. Put yourself back there. You understand now the background of wine. You, you remember that this is meant to be an occasion of joy and feasting and celebration. And now, the wine's gone. They've run out. Consider the very large amount of wine that Jesus miraculously, by his sovereign power, turns from water. Consider its exquisite quality. Consider the way that the head waiter was blown away, his expectations overcome by what had been made by Jesus. Consider, as I mentioned earlier, John's heavy emphasis on whether or not the Messiah has come. And consider all that wine. Church, the Messiah that God promised who would die for his people, raised from the dead, and bring all the blessings of God's kingdom is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the message. That's his announcement to the world. The anticipation is over. The time under the Mosaic law, waiting for the time when the Messiah would come, has been fulfilled. So verse 11 tells us this is the first of Jesus' signs. The first of his miracles with a meaning by which he made his glory known and seen to all. The old has passed and the new has come and Jesus is the one who brought it in. And you don't need special powers of interpretation to understand that the, the signs announce the Messiah. That's what John says. You guys remember the purpose statement at the end of John. Maybe you haven't heard it in quite this light. Let me read it to you again. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John tells us in chapter 1 what Christ is. Christ means Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word, meaning the anointed one, God's anointed one, the seed of Abraham, the one who came to bring all God's promises, the, the, the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. It would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the Messiah. So then the question becomes, like the disciples who believed in him when they saw his glory, do you believe in 
Jesus. You have now, after listening to me talk, more than sufficient revelation to put all your hope and trust in Jesus as God's promised Messiah. Do you believe in him? Do you have eternal life, which is what God gives when a person believes in Jesus? We need to think now about what this means for you. And I'm going to apply, do my best, God help me, what it means to two different groups. If you're visiting with us and you're not yet a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. Praise God that you're here. I want to help you understand how this text applies to you, to your life, in this season of your life that you're in now. You need to reckon with what this text claims about a man who lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus. The text is not ambiguous. The Bible is not ambiguous. You need to reckon with what those claims are, specifically that Jesus is God's promised one who's going to be the only Savior for all of God's people forever. Positively, he's the suffering servant who was put to death like a sheep who's taken to the slaughter. He suffered that way, willingly, quietly. He didn't fight. He didn't try and get away. He was a willing substitute because of sin. Sin just means, I don't want what you say, God. I want to turn away from that, and I want to go my own way. When we say sin, that's what we mean. Not honoring, loving, treasuring God, and choosing anything else. You also have to reckon with what the rest of this gospel, the gospel of John, will claim about Jesus. That he's risen from the dead. Not mystically, not in an imagination, not in a text only, but a real man risen from the dead in glory and never having died again. The Bible's not ambiguous about the literal, factual, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. You need to reckon with that. If that's true, you owe him all of your allegiance and worship and praise and everything. You owe him your bank account, your possessions, your family. You owe him everything. Do you believe what the Bible says about this Messiah? You also have to reckon with the fact that the Bible is really clear that he's coming back. This is the clear, certain, all Christians forever have believed that Jesus will return and everybody will see him. You have to reckon with these things. I'm trying to help make the truth of the Bible at least clear. And I'm trying to encourage you to reckon with these things rather than shoving them off for later. You either believe these things or you reject them. We want to help you believe in him. Come alongside you. Explain, teach, and let God do his work. But if you're a Christian, what does this mean for you? It means that the curtain is off. The mystery is revealed. The husband has returned on the boat. Louis Zamperini is out of the POW camp. Spring has come. The leaves are on the tree. The wait for the Messiah to come and bring God's kingdom is over. He's here. Now, we wait for his second coming, but in one very important sense, the veil has been removed. We can see his glory. 
Paul can say in Romans 16, he can speak of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested. Saints, the Messiah has come. God has given very clear testimony in the Bible about who he is. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. You're meant to see his glory, like chapter 11, like that first ray of light that comes through the storm clouds, and oh, I can see his glory, and put your hope in him. The world is turbulent, and he never changes. He'll be the Messiah forever. The curtain's removed. The application is to believe in him, to put your trust in him. The application is to believe in him and put your trust in him. And when you do, God will give you eternal life, real life, not biological life. You're just alive but not really living, dead to God, but real life, life with God, Jesus as your treasure, both in this life and in the world to come in which we're hoping. So no matter who you are, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And when you believe, the only God who is, who is life himself, will give you life in Jesus. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Messiah, Jesus who brings all your blessings. Thank you for his power. Thank you that the old is past and the new has come. Thank you that the wait has been completed and that Jesus came, that he did all your will, that he suffered and died and rose, that he now sits at your right, handing, at your right hand and that in him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of your blessing, you've withhold, you have withheld none of your blessing from your people. You have given us everything. Like Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who is against us? If you did not spare your own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? Thank you, Father that we live in the light of your approval and that you could not have blessed us any more than you did. Open our eyes to see his glory, to believe in him, and to rejoice in eternal life. Pray in Jesus' name.